Hello and welcome to the Private Library Podcast. Today we're going to be reading from Mysticism, The Experience of the Divine. This is a really good book. It's about Christian mysticism. Uh, Basically, it begins one generation removed from Jesus. Uh, It's all the people just trying to figure out what Christianity is after Jesus died. Um, And it basically just... It starts from there and goes throughout. And uh, Christian mysticism is basically just the essence of all different forms of Christianity. It is the relationship with God. It is trying to be biblical, you know? So, even if you uh, even if you aren't a Christian or you don't care about religion at all, I think this is still pretty interesting, at least the first half, because it is... Uh, it is a, a forgotten area of history. Like, this is all what happens, you know, right after the Bible and so on. So, it's a, it's a really interesting read, and uh, I hope you stick around. Um, but, without further ado, let's get right into it. Uh, no matter where you're from or what you're going through, you're in the library now. And uh, I'm glad you're here. The Perfection of the Spirit The mystic experience is most commonly defined as the experience of union with the divine or transcendent. As such, it is an individual and private phenomenon and does not have a fixed home in any one religious tradition, nor is it limited to any particular age. Mystics have appeared in all cultures and all ages. They have flourished within the great organized religions as well as outside them. There have been Christian, Jewish, and Muslim mystics, as well as Hindu, Buddhist, and Taoist ones. And there have been mystics who were simply themselves, part of no tradition, and not even recognizing any entity that they would call God. Thus, to speak of medieval mysticism is an artifice, adopted here for the purpose of presenting just one slice of a human experience that spans the whole of human history, including the present day. It is a rich slice, however. Religious life in the Middle Ages was characterized by a rare spirit of inquiry, controversy, and experimentation. The Christian Church was just a few centuries old, still in the process of defining its doctrine, its organization, its rituals, and its understanding of the nature, both of its God and the man Jesus, who is its inspiration and founder. In this process of definition... The mystics of the church played a profoundly influential and sometimes controversial role. From the earliest so-called desert fathers who took up solitary lives of asceticism and contemplation in the Syrian and Egyptian deserts in the first centuries following Jesus' crucifixion to the 16th century when Teresa of Avila in Spain wrote that God was, quote, present in all things, and my life is the life which God has lived in me. The mystics of the Christian church served as living examples of religious scripture. The circumstances of their lives, their descriptions of their experiences, and the conclusions they drew from these experiences about the nature of God and human life were varied and sometimes contradictory. But the medieval mystics, like mystics of all ages, were possessed of a luminous and magnetic quality that attracted the respect and veneration of others around them, 
and so inevitably shaped the religious and spiritual aspirations of their age. Mystics of the Desert Paul the Simple, Isaac of the Cells, Macarius the Great, Simeon the Stylite, John the Dwarf, these were among the colorful names of mystics who were scattered across the deserts of Syria and Egypt in the early years of Christianity. Some of them traveled from village to village, gathering followers along the way. Some lived in caves or small huts, receiving the pilgrims who sought them out for spiritual advice. Others were wild and adamant, adamantly solitary, living without even clothing or shelter. A group known as the Stylites retreated to live atop pillars built of stone, exposed to the elements and living only on what food and water was brought to them by their admirers. They became known as the Desert Fathers, and the totality of their commitment to the spiritual life strongly influenced the early church. St. Antony, perhaps one of the most well-known of the Desert Fathers, is considered to be the true originator of Christian monastic life. Born of a wealthy Egyptian family in 251 AD, he renounced his inheritance at the age of 30 and moved into a solitary hut in the desert near his native village. However, his charisma was such that he soon began to be visited by seekers and admirers. He then walled himself up in a deserted fort for 20 years, emerging only to move even farther into the wilderness. But always, he was surrounded by those seeking his counsel or his blessings. Finally, just before his death at the age of a hundred, Antony entrusted the care of those who had gathered around him to one of his chief disciples, Pacomius. And it was Pacomius in the fourth century who began to structure and organize the ascetics and seekers into monastic communities. A touching story is told in the Sayings of the Fathers, compiled and published in the twelfth century of an exchange typical of those between the mystics of the desert and those who gathered around them. The account concerns John the Dwarf and one of his elderly and absent-minded disciples. The older man would often, often consult John and, as often, immediately forgot what he had been told. Painfully aware of his own lapses in memory, the old man once approached his master with an embarrassed apology. John the Dwarf reportedly said, Go and light a lamp, the old man did as he was told. Then John said, Bring some more lamps and light them from the first. Again, the old man obeyed. John asked him, Has the lamp suffered any loss from the fact that the other lamps have been lit from it? The old man said, No. John said, So it is with John. Even if the whole of the skeptics came to see me, they would not separate me from the love of Christ. Consequently, whenever you want to, come to me without hesitation. The cloisters and monastic orders of the later medieval period were both centers of spiritual life and centers of learning. It was here that Greek, Arabic, Persian, and Aramaic, Aramaic texts began to be translated into Latin and were discussed in the noble courts with, with, with these religious communities were affiliated. The cathedral schools and the universities both quickened the pace of translations of ancient texts and broadened the influence of their teachings. Among the teachings that made their way into religious debates and discussions, a set of writings attributed to Dionysus, the 
Areopagite were, partic were particularly influential. Dionysus was St. Paul's convert at Athens, and, as the alleged source of a collection of writings entitled The Mystical Theology and The Divine Names, he no doubt gave them an air of sanctity and weight that they, that they might not have enjoyed otherwise. Most scholars today think the treatises were actually written by a monk in Syria, probably around the 6th century, and the author has now come to be known as Pseudo-Dionysus. They were first translated from Greek into Latin in the 9th century by an Irish theologian and philosopher, John Scottish Arginia. Arginia's own philosophy was profoundly influenced by the texts, and his elaborations on the treatises formed the basis of two religious movements condemned as heretical. Union with the divine says the mystical theology is the goal of human life, and it is implied this life, not a life in the hereafter. In order to reach this state, one must be free of all thought, emotion, and sensation. To dwell permanently in this defied, defied state, furthermore, requires, us, requires the unceasing and absolute renunciation of ourselves and of all things. The central themes of these treatises are found in many of the teachings of the Desert Fathers, and formed the theolo theological basis of much of the Christian mysticism in the Middle Ages. The Influence of Neoplatonism Not all of mysticism in medieval Europe was confined within the boundaries of the Christian Church, of course. Throughout the Middle Ages, the mysticism, the mysticism of the Neoplatonists, particularly as expressed in the writings of Plot, Plot, Plotinus, sorry, remained a powerful influence on religious and philosophical thought. Though Plotinus himself was a pagan, the view of, rea the view of reality he expressed in his writings was one which corresponds, corresponds to the experience of mystics regardless of their religious affiliation. Plotinus was born in Egypt during the 3rd century, educated in Alexandria, and finally settled in Rome. His Aeneads comprised of six books of nine sections each, were his attempts not only to describe the mystical experience, but to, but to help others to experience it as well. The cosmology Plotinus constructed was based on Platonic ideas, and his writings were introduced into the realm of medieval scholasticism. They captured the imagination of theologians and philosophers in many ways, both straightforward and subliminal. The souls of men are not cut off from their origin, Plotinus insisted. Though they have descended even to earth, yet their higher part holds forever above their, the heavens. And, in his view, the way to unity with the Absolute was most, was most effectively by negation via negativa. Cut away everything that is not the one, he said, and thereby reach an inner freedom and detachment from eternal thing from external things that leaves one quote self self incentered beholding a marvelous beauty acquiring identity with the divine. This process he called quote, the flight of the alone to the alone. And although the seeker can prepare for its happening, there is nothing one can do to grasp it. 
In this seeing we neither hold an object in the mind, nor trace distinction, nor are there two. The man is changed, no longer himself, nor self-belonging. He is merged with the supreme, sunken into it, one with it. In his description, Platonus agrees with mystics of both East and West, through all ages and times. The ideas of Plotinus, Plotinus or Platonus, which one? The ideas of Plotinus and Neoplatonism were brought into the Christian framework by Augustine, born in the 4th century in what is now Algeria of a pagan father and a Christian mother. At first attracted to Manichaeism, he discovered Neoplatonism as a lecturer in Milan, largely through the works of Plotinus that, he, that had recently been translated into Latin. It was during this time that he had the first of several glimpses of mystical experience, which he later described in his Confessions. His, con- his conversion to Christianity was undertaken after years of internal struggle between his mystic longings and the joys of married life, material advantage, and respectability. After it, he spent most of his life in North Africa, where he served as Bishop of Hippo and produced a vast body of written work that was to influence theologians and scholars for centuries to follow. The Mysticism of Devotion The actual experience of the mystic contains no contradiction between what we would call devotion and what we would call detachment, but the language mystics are forced to use is bound by distinctions and dualities, hence their continual insistence that words are inadequate. Unfortunately for the listeners, though, there is no way to comprehend just how inadequate the words are until they somehow stumble upon the mystical experience themselves. A further confusion arises due to the different uses of particular words. Richard of St. Victor, the 12th, the 12th century theologian of mysticism, attempts this definition. Thinking roams about. Meditation investigates. Contemplation wonders. By meditation, he and most other Christian theologians do not mean the state of thought, free recepti- thought-free receptivity that the word can connotes in eastern terms. Rather, meditation in Richard's terms is nearer to devotional prayer, a form of concentration where the seeker focuses his or her entire attention on God, or on Christ as God's human manifestation. To To the Christian mystic, it is in a state of contemplation that the seeker finds the transcendent union with the divine known as meditation in the East. Two of the Christian saints, Bernard of Clairvaux and Francis of Assaye, were probably the most well-known of the devotional mystics. Bernard, who was a distinguished Cistercian and was instrumental in founding the Templars, spoke often of the relation between God and the seeker that the, that between spiritual bridegroom and bride. 
The object of Francis's love was Jesus more than God himself, but certainly to Francis there was no conflict between the two. In this love, Francis sought to become more and more like Jesus, until he finally developed on his own body the same wounds Christ had suffered in the crucifixion. Neither Bernard nor Francis were the type to confine themselves to lives of solitude and withdraw from the world. Each, in their own way, combined activity with response, good works in the world with work upon themselves. As Bernard once said, Let the work of piety accompany the labors of penitence, which strengthen the soul. To the nourishment of good works, let there be added the drought of prayer. The mystics of the devotional type generally describe their experience as one of, quote, hearing the voice of God, as did Catherine of Siena, or as being gifted with elaborate visions, such as those of Hildegard and Bingen, or Rupert of Dutz. And, when they return to their ordinary state from these ecstasies of mystic union, their pain is as great as the pain of lovers separated. In Christian mysticism, as in the Eastern traditions, these dark nights of the soul are seen as a necessary part of the mystic's growth toward a state of permanent union with the divine. The Book of the Lover and the Beloved One of the more intriguing books from the Middle Ages, reflecting the devotional stream in Christian mysticism, is attributed to Ramon Lull, a Catalan of the 13th century, who was a Franciscan tertiary, or lay member of the Order of St. Francis. This same person has also been described as a hermetic doctor and an alchemist, and it is likely that that Lull was one of those charismatic medieval figures whose name was placed on manuscripts by other authors in order to give them greater validity and appeal. The Book of the Lover and the Beloved tells a tale that captures the more romantic and freewheeling spectrum of medieval mysticism. In it, Lull tells the story of his own renunciation of a decadent courtly life, provoked by an encounter with a married noblewoman, he had been shamelessly pursuing for some time. Finally, in consultation with her husband, the woman arranged to meet Ramon in, an, in a secluded place. He arrived expecting that he was at last about to gain her favors, but instead she pulled aside her dress to, to reveal a supporting breast cancer. See, Ramon, the woman commanded, the foulness of this body that has won thy affection. How much better hast thou done to have set thy love on Jesus Christ, of whom thou mayest have a prize that is eternal? Shocked to the core, Ramon renounced all worldly desires, and among the legends told about him are that he traveled to North Africa to engage in public debates with Muslims, and there convert or be converted. His contact with Muslims is also mentioned in his preface to his book, where his fictional character, Blanquerna, decides to make a book of what of the lover and the, uh, and the beloved, in which the lover should be a faithful and devout Christian, and the beloved should be God. Lowell's character has, he tells us, once been a pope, and at that time he had heard from one of the Saracens that they have certain religious men and that among others are certain men called Sufis, 
who are the most prized among them, and these men have words of love and brief examples which give to men great devotion, and these are words which demand exposition, and by the exposition thereof the understanding soars aloft, and the will likewise soars and is increased in devotion. The Book of the Lover and the Beloved was written in the vernacular, and as such was obviously intended for the laity. It consists of 366 short verses, one for every day of the year. The, con the content of the verses points to the mystic union with God through devotion, and the book remains one of the most charming and accessible written works of the medieval period. Mystics of the Rhineland School of the medieval mystics whose experiences conformed to the inward realization commonly called via negativa, or the way that emphasizes negation and detachment, Meister Eckhart stands out as one who devoted enormous energy to the task of transmitting the secrets of this path to others. Again, it is important to stress that Eckhart himself would not make this division between the negative and positive path, between the path of detachment and the path of love. He says, in fact, Through knowledge I receive God into myself, and through love I enter into him. The knowledge of which he speaks is not book learning, but the purification of the mind from accumulated impressions that interfere with the direct perception of reality. Thus emptied, God can enter in. By one devoting oneself to the quest, through love, the seeker has made the step necessary to meet him halfway. Eckhart's efforts to communicate his experience earned him a good deal of trouble from church authorities, and, the late, and late in his life he found himself defending many of his statements during a trial before the Inquisition to Cologne. In examining the objections raised by the Inquisitors and Eckhart's response to them, one is again reminded of the difficult mystics faced in adapting ordinary language to descriptions of extraordinary truths. Eckhart was accused, for example, of saying that there is something in the soul that is uncreated and uncreatable, a statement that presumably was interpreted to be an affront to God's reputation. In fact, Eckhart points out he had said, quote, There is something in the, in the soul that is so akin to God that, is one, that it is one with him. It has nothing in common with anything that is created. A subtle point and one that was apparently lost in the authorities. Numerous portions of Eckhart's published teachings were condemned by a papal bull issued in Avignon in 1329. As founder of the Rhineland School, Eckhart had a profound influence on German mysticism in particular. While St. Francis was a renun renunciate of physical luxuries, Eckhart was a renunciant of all externally gathered ideas. Man should not rest satisfied with an imaginary God, he said in one of his sermons. When thoughts passed away, but the God also disappears, but one should have an essential God, who is far above the thought of man and of all creatures. As a preacher, Eckhart spoke in the vernacular and was intimately involved with the, with the lives and concerns of his laity. 
His sermons imp implicitly attacked the long-held idea that a religious life was possibly only within cloisters removed from the world. One must learn an inner solitude, wherever one may be, he said, and insisted that the true renunciation was not of kingdoms, but, one of, but of one's perception to oneself as an entity separate from God. Finally, and perhaps most heretically of all, Eckhart appeared to go against the teachings that insisted on following Jesus through imi imitation of his godly behavior, pointing instead to the divinity he believed everyone contained. People never need to think so much about what they ought to do, he said, but they should remember what they are, and it is more worthy of God that he should be born spiritually of every virgin or of every good soul than that he should have been born physically of Mary. Many of Eckhart's disciples, after his condemnation by the Inquisition, were careful to distance themselves from their master, even though they might have continued to abide by his teachings. Others, like Henry Suso, J. Roosbroek, John Toller, and the authors of Theologia Germanica, continued to openly identify themselves with Eckhart, and some time after his death they formed an association, including laymen, called the Friends of God. The Mystic Heresies Christ himself was one who spoke often and eloquently of union with the divine, but some of the mystics who appear to have shared his experience attracted the suspicion and sometimes outright enmity of the medieval church. At the root of this suspicion was perhaps a sincere effort to prevent seekers from falling into one of the many pitfalls among the spiritual path, such as the delusions and hallucinations that cannot be mistaken for the genuine mystic mystical experience. At the root of the enmity was no doubt the same fan fan fanaticism that in endangered the Inquisition and its authoritarian attempts to establish the doctrines of the Christian Church as the only legitimate guide to religious experience. Along the way, more than a few unorthodox ideas earned their adherents, disposition of their wealth and reputation, long prison sentences, or even death. The Amorian Heresy of the Free Spirit Two strong heretical movements with overtly mystical doctrines emerged in the 13th century, both directly antagonistic to the Church. The first was based on the philosophy of John Scotus Ergina, the translator of the Neoplatonist Dionysius texts. Ergina's book on the division of nature was the basis of lectures given to the Amori of Bean at the University of Paris early in the 13th century. In them, he spoke of a doctrine of the free spirit, and proclaimed that the entire church, as it was presently constituted, was destined to pass away. In its place would emerge a new era of human spirituality based on the inner consciousness of God, and that consciousness, naturally, would need no organized priesthood or church. Amori was posthumously condemned as a heretic in 1210, and eleven of his disciples were burned at the stake. But the doctrine of the free spirit was an idea that would not die so easily, and it reemerged later in the 13th century among men and women known as the Beghards and the Beguines. 
The Council of the Council of Vienna, in turn, condemned the heresy of the free spirit in 1312, but its popularity continued to spread, sometimes among the friends of God who followed Eckhart's teachings. Most notably among them was Nicholas of Basel, who was burned as a heretic in the late 14th century. Certainly, the free spirit teachings took Eckhart's views to an extreme that was more closely allied with the tantric mysticism of the East than with any of the views of the mystics who had remained within the framework of Christian orthodoxy. The Bishop of Strasbourg noted that these heretics claimed that the soul's inward voice is safer than the truths preached in the church and that nobody will be lost in the end not even Jews or Saracens, because their spirits will return to God. The Eternal Gospel Joachim of Fior, who died in 1202, was not familiar with the Amorian doctrines, which makes the commonality between his vision and that of the doctrine of the free spirit all the more intriguing. Both the Amorians and the eternal gospel preached by Joachim were his fo- and his followers asserted that there were three ages in the history of the world, that of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Both groups characterized the ages of the Father and the Son as ages of servile obedience in the fear and f- filial subject, sub- sub- subjection and faith respectively. Both said that the age of the Holy Spirit was imminent and would make the church obsolete. The main features of the age would be liberty, love, and then and contemplation. The world would become a vast monastery populated by human beings with spiritual bodies in unity with God. And the eastern and western churches would be reunited. Many mystics of the later medieval period tread just this side of heresy during their lifetimes, including Teresa of Avila, Francis of Assisi, and John of the Cross. The authoritarian tendencies within the church that resulted in the Inquisition did not tolerate individual mystics easily, and many were called to justify their experiences in rigorous examinations by their superiors. In their book, The Common Experience, Authors J. M. Cohen and J. F. Phipps argue that mystical re- mystical teaching within the Roman Catholic Church came to an end, at least temporarily, with the 17th century trial of Miguel de Molinos. Quote, Thinking Rome's about, meditation investigates, contemplation wonders, Richard of St. Victor had said, Molinos, in his popular book, Spiritual Guide, addressed himself to the question of wonder, to the point of the path where the mystic must take a step out of meditation or devotional prayer and into contemplation. There is at a point in spiritual practice, Molinos argued, when it no longer profits the seeker to concentrate on God. His inclination is is to stay still, said Molinos, in the med- mediator. His only pleasure is to remain calm and silent, calmly and lovingly aware that he is with God and attending only to him. Molinos himself was insistent that his views were entirely consistent with the teachings of Christ. 
Contemporary chroniclers of the trial reported that he was at all times gracious, composed, and serene in presenting his views. In convicting Molinos on charges of heresy and condemning him to prison, where he spent nine years before he died, the inquisitors of the church implied that their concern was with preserving forms and rituals more than with the spiritual enlightenment of the individual. They were, in the words of Molinos, more interested in chewing the food than in swallowing and digesting it. It is an attitude that can be found throughout the history of all ages, all cultures, all organized religions, perhaps arising from a natural tendency of the mind to attach itself to the familiar, the known, the rational. In fact, it is a testimony to the openness of the medieval church that so many mystics managed to emerge with it and survive. And it is a testimony to the divine within the human spirit that no matter how persecuted, ridiculed, or constrained it may be, it emerges in all ages, in all cultures, and religious settings with a unity of experience that transcends the limitations of space and time.